Welcome back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and I'm back with my co-host, Nachi Gupta. This month, we're tackling an incredibly important topic, evaluation and management of life-threatening headaches in the emergency department. Fear not. This won't simply be a who-needs-a-head CT episode. We'll cover much more than that. Listen closely, as this is an important topic with huge consequences for mismanagement. Absolutely. As some quick background, headaches account for 3% of all ED visits in the United States, with 90% being benign primary headaches and less than 10% being secondary to other causes like vascular, infectious, or traumatic etiologies. It's within these latter 10% that we are looking for the red flag signs to identify the potentially life-threatening headaches. And to do so, Dr. David Zada and Dr. Amit Gupta, PD and APD at Hackensack University Medical and Trauma Center, and their colleague, Dr. Gabrielle Procopio, a PharmD, have done a fantastic job parsing through the literature, which included over 500 abstracts, 89 full-text articles, guidelines from ASAP and the American Academy of Neurology, as well as Canadian and European neurology guidelines, to summarize the best evidence-based recommendations for you all. We would be remiss to not also mention Dr. Mert Urogol of Maimonides Medical Center and Dr. Stephen Godwin, Chair of Emergency Medicine at the University of Florida College of Medicine. All right, so let's get started with some definitions and pathophysiology. The International Classification of Headache Disorders 3, or ICHD3, classifies headaches into primary, secondary, and cranial neuropathies. Primary headache disorders include migraine, tension, and cluster headaches. Secondary headaches include those secondary to vascular disorders, traumatic disorders, and disorders in hemostasis. These are potentially life-threatening headaches that can have a mortality as high as 50%. And the final category includes cranial neuropathies, such as trigeminal neuralgia. And I think we can safely say that that wraps up our discussion in this episode on cranial neuropathies. Moving on. Headaches result from traction to or irritation of the meninges and blood vessels, which are the only innervated central nervous system structures. Activation of specific nerve ganglion complexes by neuropeptides, like substance P and calcitonin chain-related peptide, are thought to contribute to head pain. It's important to note that all headache pain shares common pain pathways, thus response to pain medications does not exclude potential life-threatening secondary causes of headache. This led to the ASEP guideline, which states just that. I feel like that deserves a ding sound, as it's a critically important point. To repeat, just because a pain medication relieves a headache, that does not exclude dangerous secondary causes. And what are the life-threatening headaches? Life-threatening headaches include subarachnoid hemorrhage, cervical artery dissection, which includes both vertebral artery dissection and carotid artery dissection, cerebral venous thrombosis, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, giant cell arteritis, and posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, or PRESS. Slow down for a second, and let's not skip over your favorite section. Let's talk pre-hospital care for headache patients. Great call. Pre-hospital care is fairly straightforward and includes a primary survey, conducting a focused neurologic exam, and assessing for red flag signs, which include focal neurologic deficits, sudden onset headache, new headache in those over 50, neck pain or stiffness, changes in visual acuity, fever or immunocompromised states, history of malignancy, pregnancy or postpartum status, syncope, and seizure. That's quite the list. For a visual reference, see Table 3 in the print issue. And patients with neurologic deficits or severe sudden-onset headaches should be transported immediately to the nearest available stroke center. Tylenol should be offered for pain management and avoid opiates or NSAIDs. Upon arrival to the emergency department, history and physical should include your standard vitals, neurologic testing, cranial nerve testing, headache neck exam, as well as a fundoscopic exam. As was the case for your pre-hospital colleagues, you should also assess for red flag signs for life-threatening headaches. Check out tables 2, 3, and 4 for more details here. 
With respect to vital signs, in the setting of an acute headache, severe hypertension should prompt a search for signs of end-organ damage, such as hypertensive encephalopathy, intracranial hemorrhage, press, and preeclampsia in pregnant women. Additionally, fever, and especially fever and neck stiffness, should raise concern for CNS infection. For your neurologic examination, make sure to include assessments of motor strength, coordination, reflexes, sensory function, and gait. Don't forget that lesions involving the anterior circulation, such as dysarthria, cognitive impairment, and Horner syndrome, may be indicative of a carotid artery dissection, whereas dizziness, vision changes, and limb weakness may be due to a vertebral artery dissection. And for cranial nerve testing, pay particular attention to cranial nerves 2, 3, and 6. For cranial nerve 2, look out for an afferent pupillary defect or a Marcus Gunn pupil, which is seen in optic neuritis, giant cell arteritis, and central retinal artery occlusion. For cranial nerve 3, oculomotor nerve palsies raise concern for a posterior communicating aneurysm and subarachnoid hemorrhage. And lastly, cranial nerve 6 palsies, which often present with diplopia on lateral gaze, are often seen with intracranial idiopathic hypertension and cerebral venous thrombosis, in addition to impaired visual acuity, visual field defects, and tunnel vision. For the head and neck exam, remember that a partial Horner syndrome with meiosis and ptosis without anhydrosis may be indicative of a cervical artery dissection. Unfortunately, if the patient presents acutely, their only complaint may be pain, as the neurologic sequelae may take days to develop. Additionally, with respect to the head and neck exam, evaluate the patient for tenderness and beating along the temporal artery. One review noted that temporal artery beating actually had the highest likelihood ratio for GCA, 4.6, whereas temporal artery tenderness only had a likelihood ratio of 2.6. And the last physical exam maneuver you should ideally perform is a fundoscopic exam for papilledema, which is often seen in idiopathic intracranial hypertension, malignant hypertension, and cerebral venous thrombosis. Perfect. So that rounds out the physical. Next, we have diagnostic studies. Most importantly, routine lab testing is typically of low utility in aiding in the diagnosis of headache. Even ESR and CRP in the setting of possible giant cell arteritis both have poor sensitivity and specificity to diagnose it. So even if the ESR and CRP are negative, if the suspicion for GCA is high enough, it should be treated and you should get a biopsy. Do consider adding on a venous or arterial carboxyhemoglobin in the right clinical scenario, as carbon monoxide poisoning represents an important cause of headache you wouldn't want to miss. This is especially important at this time of year when your heating systems are working overtime here in the United States. And hopefully you have a co-oximeter, so you can even check this non-invasively. Interestingly, there may be a unique role for the D-dimer here as well. Several small studies have used the D-dimer to risk stratify patients with possible cerebral venous thrombosis. In one study, a D-dimer level of less than 500 had a 97% sensitivity and a negative predictive value of 99%. Not bad. Pretty impressive performance characteristics. I think that about wraps up lab work. Let's talk radiology. Though low yield, CT utilization is estimated at 2.5 to 10% of all non-traumatic headaches. A non-con CT should be reserved for those with suspicion for an intracranial hemorrhage, while a contrast CT would be required in those whom there is concern for an infectious process or a space-occupying lesion. CT angio or MRI should be used in cases of possible cervical artery dissection. MRI is also the neuroimaging of choice for press which is more sensitive for cerebral edema than CT. Similarly, MRV is recommended in those with the concerning stories for CBT. To help guide your emergent neuroimaging utilization, ASAP suggests imaging in those with headache and an abnormal finding on neuroexam, those with new and sudden onset severe headache, HIV-positive patients with new headache, and those over 50 with a new headache.
With that in mind, let's dive a bit deeper into the use of CT for subarachnoid hemorrhage, a topic which doesn't get a ding sound, but is certainly critically important. Recent literature have found that a CT within six hours of symptom onset has a sensitivity and specificity and negative predictive value all of 100%. In addition, one 2016 study demonstrated a likelihood ratio of 0.01 in those with a negative head CT within six hours. These are really important results because that means subarachnoid hemorrhage is essentially ruled out with a negative study. Unfortunately, the 2008 ASAP guideline and 2012 AHA guidelines still recommend a lumbar puncture in those being worked up for subarachnoid hemorrhage. Luckily, the ASAP guideline is currently being revised, so your decision to forego the LP with a negative head CT in the first six hours will likely also be backed by ASAP in the near future. That's a nice transition into our next test to discuss, the lumbar puncture. Since LP carries a risk of herniation in those with signs of increased ICP, make sure to get appropriate neuroimaging before attempting the puncture. In those without signs of increased ICP, no imaging is necessary. While the position in which the LP is performed doesn't matter as much when ruling out infection or subarachnoid hemorrhage, in those with suspected idiopathic intracranial hypertension, make sure to obtain an opening pressure with the patient lying in the lateral decubitus position. An opening pressure of greater than 25 is often seen in IIH. And the lumbar puncture in the setting of IIH is not only diagnostic, but also potentially therapeutic, as the removal of 1 ml of CSF can lower the pressure by 1 centimeter of water and potentially relieve the patient's symptoms. Always rewarding to diagnose and treat simultaneously. Absolutely, but back to the LP for subarachnoid hemorrhage for a second. When evaluating for a subarachnoid hemorrhage, you'll often note an opening pressure of greater than 20 with persistent red blood cells in all tubes. While there are no RBC cutoffs, one study found no patients with a subarachnoid hemorrhage with less than 100 RBCs in the final tube. In contrast, greater than 10,000 RBCs increased the odds by a factor of 6. In addition, one 2015 study found that patients without xanthochromia and less than 2,000 RBCs were effectively ruled out of having a subarachnoid hemorrhage with a combined sensitivity of 100%. Lots of 100% sensitivities and specificities being thrown around today, which is definitely not the norm for the articles we've been reviewing lately. No complaints though, I'll take it. Anyway, the last test to discuss is our good friend, the ultrasound, specifically the ocular ultrasound. Examining the optic nerve sheath three millimeters posterior to the globe, an optic nerve sheath diameter of five millimeters or greater is predictive of an ICP greater than 20. Keep in mind that this may expedite the workup, though a normal diameter does not rule out increased ICP, so a head CT may still be indicated. Alright, so we've talked a lot about testing, both lab and imaging, and we've mentioned a bunch of pathologies, but let's spend a few minutes going over the specifics of each. Let's start out with subarachnoid hemorrhage. Subarachnoid hemorrhage accounts for 1% of all headache visits to the ED. Most non-traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhages are caused by aneurysm rupture. A misdiagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage can have a case fatality rate as high as 50%. Although 75% of subarachnoid hemorrhage patients report an abrupt onset, objective neck stiffness has the highest likelihood ratio at 6.6. Other important features include loss of consciousness, neurologic deficit, subjective neck stiffness, photophobia, and onset during exertion or intercourse. Additionally, approximately 20% of patients with a subarachnoid hemorrhage have warning signs of a sentinel bleed, including headaches, cranial nerve palsies, neck pain, or nausea and vomiting. In order to aid you in diagnosing a subarachnoid hemorrhage, you should consider the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule, which has a 100% sensitivity and 15% specificity. To use this rule, you must be between 15 and 40 with a GCS of 15, and present with a headache with maximal intensity within one hour of onset. If you meet those inclusion criteria and you have no neurologic deficits, no neck pain or stiffness, 
no witnessed LOC, no onset during exertion, no limitation of neck flexion, and no thunderclap onset, you can essentially rule out a subarachnoid hemorrhage. While the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule has been prospectively validated, know that this study has been challenged for its inter-observer variability, but in any case, it still provides helpful red flags to consider. If your patient is found to have a subarachnoid hemorrhage, a CT angiogram and neurosurgical consultation should be considered immediately. And in addition to monitoring ABCs, early care involves the administration of analgesics and antiemetics. Also, consider elevating the head of the bed to 30 degrees, which may also improve venous drainage and decrease intracranial pressure. In terms of blood pressure management, guidelines from the American Stroke Association recommend targeting a systolic blood pressure of 160 with a titratable agent like nicardipine or clavidipine. In addition, nimodipine, 60 milligrams every four hours, should be given to those with aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage to improve outcomes. And do you know, is there any role for anti-epileptics here? Well, that's controversial, and the authors state that it may be considered in the immediate post-hemorrhagic period and should be limited to a three- to seven-day course, with longer courses required in special populations. The next pathology to discuss is cervical artery dissections, which account for 2% of all strokes and nearly 20% of strokes in those 50 and under. Cervical artery dissections are most commonly due to trauma, but can also occur spontaneously. And risk factors here include Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, osteogenesis imperfecta, and Marfan syndrome. Regardless of the etiology, the management of cervical artery dissections is primarily medical, with IV heparin followed by warfarin or direct oral anticoagulant in those with extracranial dissections, and antiplatelet therapy like aspirin or clopridogrel in those with intracranial dissections. Thanks to the CADISP study, we know there's no difference in mortality or neurologic outcome when choosing between antiplatelet therapy and anticoagulation. Next, we have cerebral venous thrombosis. This typically presents with a gradual onset headache. Though it can happen to anybody, cerebral venous thrombosis typically results from thrombotic disease. Important risk factors here include oral contraceptive use, pregnancy and postpartum states, factor V laden deficiency, and lupus. Treatment for cerebral venous thrombosis is controversial due to a high risk of hemorrhage and hemorrhagic transformation. According to the best available evidence, anticoagulation is the standard therapy with full-dose anticoagulation of low-molecular weight heparin or heparin as a bridge to warfarin. Yeah, it's really a tough spot to be in as one-third end up having some form of hemorrhage too. Yet, maybe it's another good place for shared decision-making? Honestly, that's a good thought, but anticoagulation is the guideline recommendation, so I think that's likely the best route still. Great point. Next, we have idiopathic intracranial hypertension. This is typically associated with obese women of childbearing age. It may also be due to hypervitaminosis A from excessive dietary intake and even drugs like the retinoids used in treating dermatologic conditions and cancers. Idiopathic intracranial hypertension can be diagnosed by the modified DANDY criteria, which are found in Table 8 on page 11. Let's just run through the criteria. The modified DANDY criteria for idiopathic intracranial hypertension include signs and symptoms of increased ICP, no other neurologic abnormalities or altered level of consciousness, ICP greater than 20 on lumbar puncture with normal CSF composition, neuroimaging without another etiology for intracranial hypertension, and lastly, no other identified cause of intracranial hypertension. And as we mentioned a few minutes ago, an LP can be both diagnostic and therapeutic, though the relief is likely temporary. For more permanent treatment, weight loss is the key. Acetazolamide, 250 to 500 milligrams BID, is the first-line pharmacotherapy. Combined with weight loss, acetazolamide and a low-sodium diet has been shown to improve visual field function. And if this fails, topiramate, furosemide, and in the worst case, surgical options like CSF shunting, venous sinus stenting, and optic sheath fenestration are all options. 
I imagine taking a diuretic for a headache could be a real hindrance on quality of life, though I suppose it is better than risking vision loss or having a significant neurosurgery. Agreed. Next we have giant cell arteritis. GCA is rare, with a prevalence of less than 1%. It's three times more likely in women, though, and is really a disease of those older than 50. Common features include fever, fatigue, myalgias, headache, jaw claudication, and visual symptoms like diplopia or amaurosis fugax. Treatment should be started in anyone in whom you are highly suspicious. And the treatment of choice is a high-dose methylprednisolone, 15 milligrams per kilogram per day for one to three days, followed by prednisone, 40 milligrams per day. Of course, don't wait for the biopsy to begin treatment if concerned. That is quite a bit of steroids. It is, but again, better than the alternatives. Next up, we have PRESS. PRESS is a form of hypertensive emergency in which severe hypertension leads to cerebral autoregulatory failure, vasodilation, interstitial extravasation of fluid, and brain vasogenic edema. PRESS is commonly associated with hypertensive encephalopathy, eclampsia, and using immunosuppressive agents. PRESS usually manifests with an acute onset headache in the setting of an elevated blood pressure and altered level of consciousness. Seizures are very common as well. PRESS should be treated with blood pressure control with your agent of choice, though nicardipine is often preferred, with the goal of reducing the MAP by 25% within the first hour. If it were caused by a medication, such as an immunosuppressive medication, medication cessation will be imperative. While we're on the topic of blood pressure control, I should also mention two trials, INTERACT2 and ATTACH2. Results from these trials show that blood pressure control didn't appear to impact rates of death or disability, but it was associated with improved functional outcomes. Therefore, current guidelines recommend lowering systolic blood pressure to 140 or less in the setting of an intracerebral hemorrhage. We've mentioned quite a few blood pressure goals here, but if you can't remember, just remember to start nicardipine to begin lowering the MAP in a controlled and titratable manner, as this will work in almost all conditions. The next pathology we haven't talked about yet, but it's certainly worth discussing, acute angle closure glaucoma. Most commonly found in the elderly or hyperoptic patients, acute angle closure glaucoma presents with headache, eye pain, redness, tearing, photophobia, nausea and vomiting, blurred vision, and seeing halos in the setting of a rapid rise in intraocular pressure above the normal 10 to 21. If untreated, this can lead to fairly rapid vision loss, so initiating treatment with timolol, pilocarpine, and aproclonidine is imperative. And the last pathology to discuss today is preeclampsia. Preeclampsia is defined as hypertension with a systolic blood pressure greater than 140 or a diastolic greater than 90 for two readings four hours apart, or a systolic greater than 160 or a diastolic greater than 110 for one reading with either proteinuria, thrombocytopenia, liver impairment, renal insufficiency, pulmonary edema, and a new onset headache in a woman who is greater than 20 weeks gestation to four weeks postpartum. Treat severe preeclampsia, and that's preeclampsia with thrombocytopenia, liver impairment, renal insufficiency, pulmonary edema, or a new headache with IV magnesium, a 4 to 6 gram load over 15 to 20 minutes, followed by an infusion of 1 to 2 grams per hour. If the patient simply has hypertension and proteinuria, you may skip the magnesium and only use antihypertensives, such as labetalol, hydralazine, or nifedipine. And with that, I think we've covered all the big secondary causes of headache. Let's talk disposition. Pretty straightforward here. Nearly all patients diagnosed with a severe life-threatening headache will require admission or transfer to a facility with access to a 24-hour neurology critical care team. Often such patients will end up in the ICU, so make sure to get the ball rolling early as delays have been shown to increase rates of morbidity and mortality. Let's wrap up this episode with a quick review of key points and clinical pearls. Headaches account for 3% of all ED visits, with 90% being benign primary headaches. 
The most common life-threatening causes of headache are subarachnoid hemorrhage, cervical artery dissection, cerebral venous thrombosis, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, giant cell arteritis, and posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome. Subarachnoid hemorrhage accounts for 1% of all headaches and is commonly caused by aneurysm rupture. 75% present with abrupt onset. Nimodipine should be administered to those with aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage to improve outcomes. The use of prophylactic anti-epileptic drugs is controversial. Cervical artery dissection accounts for 2% of all strokes and is commonly associated with trauma and connective tissue disorders. Treat with IV heparin followed by warfarin or a direct oral anticoagulant in those with extracranial dissections, and treat with aspirin or clopidogrel in those with intracranial dissections. Cerebral venous thrombosis presents as a gradual onset headache, which is often the result of thrombotic disease and spreading facial infections. Current recommendations for the treatment of CVT include low molecular weight heparin or heparin as a bridge to warfarin. Consider broad-spectrum antibiotics if an infectious etiology is suspected. Idiopathic intracranial hypertension is associated with the obese woman of childbearing age as well as hypervitaminosis A. Lumbar puncture is both diagnostic and therapeutic for IIH. The LP should be performed in the lateral decubitus position to measure opening pressures, which will be greater than or equal to 25. Acetazolamide is a first-line pharmacotherapy. Giant cell arteritis is more common in women and is almost exclusively found in patients older than 50. Common features include fever, fatigue, myalgias, jaw claudication, and visual symptoms. Polymyalgia rheumatica is present in more than half of all cases. Treat with steroids. PRESS is a form of hypertensive emergency due to cerebral autoregulatory failure, vasodilation, interstitial extravasation of fluid, and vasogenic brain edema. PRESS is treated with blood pressure control, typically with nicardipine or labetalol. When treating hypertensive emergencies, aim for a 25% reduction in MAP in the first hour. Based on data from the INTERACT-2 and ATTACHED-2 trials, for patients with intracerebral hemorrhage, lowering systolic blood pressure to less than 140 is safe. This, however, does not impact death or disability, but it is associated with improved functional outcomes. For patients with an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, target a systolic blood pressure of 160 using nicardipine or clavidipine. Preeclampsia is defined as elevated blood pressure with proteinuria or other severe symptoms after 20 weeks gestation. Treat with 4 to 6 grams of magnesium as a loading dose, followed by 1 to 2 grams per hour as maintenance in addition to antihypertensives. Acute angle closure glaucoma is found most commonly in the elderly. It presents with headache, pain, redness, tearing, photophobia, nausea, blurred vision, and vision loss. Treat with timolol, pilocarpine, and apraclonidine while awaiting an ophthalmology consult. Routine laboratory testing in the setting of a headache is generally of low utility. ESR and CRP are both poor screening tests for giant cell arteritis. Biopsies should be obtained in those with high suspicion for GCA after treatment has already begun. Consider a D-dimer in low-risk patients to exclude CVT. Non-contrast and contrast head CT should be reserved for those suspected of having acute intracranial hemorrhage and space-occupying lesions. MRV is the test of choice for concern of CVT. A non-contrast head CT performed within six hours of onset of headache is adequate to rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage. A lumbar puncture looking at red blood cells and xanthochromia will be required if outside of this window. Utilize shared decision-making to determine an appropriate testing and treatment plan. Ocular ultrasound can expedite the diagnosis and management of ocular emergencies and rapidly diagnose intracranial pressure by measuring optic sheath diameter. Optic nerve sheath diameter greater than 5 millimeters is predictive of an intracranial pressure greater than 20. So that wraps up episode 25, Evaluation and Management of Life-Threatening Headaches in the Emergency Department.
Additional materials are available on our website for emergency medicine practice subscribers. If you're not a subscriber, consider joining today. You can find out more at evmedicine.net slash subscribe. Subscribers get in-depth articles on hundreds of emergency medicine topics, concise summaries of the articles, calculators and risk scores, and CME credit. You'll also get enhanced access to the podcast, including the images and tables mentioned. You can find everything you need to know at ebmedicine.net slash subscribe. It's also worth mentioning for current subscribers that the website has just undergone a major rehaul and update. The new site is easier to use on mobile browsers, has better search functionality, mobile-friendly CME testing, and quick access to the digest and podcast. And the address for this month's credit is ebmedicine.net slash e0219. So head over there to get your CME credit. As always, the you heard throughout the episode corresponds to the answers to the CME questions in the article. Lastly, be sure to find us on iTunes and rate us or leave comments there. You can also email us directly at amplifiedebmedicine.net with any comments or suggestions. Talk to you all next month.